Hello pod pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. How's your week been? Uh, It's been sort of, yeah, I guess a lot for bad news and, you know, things in the media just feeling like a lot to deal with, I guess. So um, I hope you're finding some time to sort of maybe tune out and, and refuel and that you're not, you know, doom scrolling through Twitter too much. But in good news, the, the Oscar nominations happened last week and it's genuinely the first time I felt excited about watching them uh, in quite a while. Obviously, it's great to see Chloe Zhao and Nomadland up for Best Director and Best Film, as well as Emerald Fennel for Promising Young Woman. Likewise, Minari, uh, Sound of Metal, Judas and the Black Messiah, all great films that it feels particularly special to see in the running. I'm also so gassed to see Garrett Bradley's documentary Time up for Best Documentary Feature after it was snubbed at the BAFTAs. And yeah, um, I just it just feels like, you know, just a bit more of an exciting and representative roster of films that were included this year. It's been a long, long time coming. Um, obviously, there are lots of women-directed films that, you know, I, I felt that did deserve to, to be included as well and, and have a light shone on them. Uh, Eliza Hitman's Never Really, Sometimes Always, Kelly Reithart's uh, First Cow, Kitty Green's The Assistant, and Shannon Murphy's Baby Teeth among them, but on the whole, a good bunch of nominations. One category you don't see lots of women nominated in is visual effects. This year there's lots of men up for awards uh, called Matt and Andrew, but and just the one lady called Genevieve Camilleri for Love and Monsters. I mention this because this week my guest is Lauren McCallum, who has worked in the VFX industry for over 15 years, and it's Best Girl Grip's first for a into visual effects so I'm just very excited to, to have Lauren on. You might be thinking you know niche or not applicable to me uh, but I really urge you to listen to this chat because Lauren's advice and perspective on a whole array of topics is you know just just phenomenal frankly. She speaks with a lot of clarity and a lot of sense. Lauren is currently head of production at Scanline VFX who have worked on films like Black Widow, Joker, Stranger Things 3, Captain Marvel and Black Panther. She also worked at MPC as head of production on films like The Jungle Book, Spectre, The Martian, uh, Blade Runner 2049, and as managing director at Mill Film, where she launched studios in Montreal and Adelaide. And before that, she was a visual effects coordinator at Framestore, where she worked closely with Alfonso Cuaron on Gravity. This is an episode for anyone struggling to maintain work-life balance. Lauren and I talk about burnout, setting boundaries, redefining success, and overcoming imposter syndrome. Lauren is also a champion for diversity and inclusion within the VFX industry, and in 2019 was named on the UK's outstanding LGBTQ role models list. We talk about the value of bringing your whole self to work and how creative industries in particular can facilitate the kind of inclusion and acceptance that enables that. Uh, We also discuss a a transgender toolkit that Lauren worked on and disseminated whilst at Mill Film. We also cover what it takes to make original and extraordinary visual effects and the lasting influence of Jurassic Park. So it's a wide-ranging but hopefully inspiring chat. Um, I know I, you know, personally got a lot from it, so I hope you do too. This is episode 78 of Best Girl Grip. Where I always like to start is to get a sense of, you know, your path into what you're doing now and where you went to university if you did and what you studied there. I'm sort of proud that I didn't go to university because I'm quite a strong believer in the fact that you don't need to to work in visual effects production mm-hmm. in fact I think a lot of people go into visual effects production as a sort of runners if you're on the creative side runners or, or production assistants with a lot of debt from university and then have to learn everything they need to do on the job when I, I think I, I'm very lucky that I started as a runner and I sort of worked my way up and I was one of the only people I knew that didn't have this sort of crippling debt. Yeah. So for me, it was good to go in, boots on the ground and learn that way. And so did that knowledge come from, you know, the age of 16, 17, knowing exactly what you wanted to go into and knowing oh, therefore yeah. that you didn't know to go to university or it was sort Six, of uh, lucky? I'd say I, I let my parents down because they had great expectations. I was a scholarship kid. So I was definitely expected to go to Oxbridge. and. I was sort of following that route, but then it became very clear to me that I'm a very practical learner and I like to be doing. I found it quite frustrating, this idea that, you know, I, I felt like I'd, I'd done all that learning and then I was kind of done with it. And it was, you know, I got the A's that I felt it was great. Now what, what's next? And the idea that, well, what's next is more learning and more grades. I was a bit like, 
really? really? <laughs> yeah. Boring. And I was very lucky that I grew up surrounded by a lot of creatives. So I was aware that jobs existed outside of the kind of jobs that you'd hear about at school. And from about 16, I'd been uh, working as a runner on sets and in Soho. So I knew that there was this shiny thing out there <laughs> and it just really didn't chime with more sort of um, grades-based education. And so was this working on film sets and did it kind of expose you to the wealth of different roles and, and what were you kind of drawn to while, while you were working on those film sets? It was mostly commercials, actually. I figured out pretty quickly, actually, that you could earn a really good rate if you were not just a runner, but you volunteered to be an extra, particularly on commercials. You know, it's more sort of a formal setup on film sets I now know. But for commercials, they rarely wouldn't hire enough extras. So if you just make sure that they knew that you were happy to do that, if you got featured, you got a big check. Yeah, I I, I think I probably therefore made the connection pretty quickly Mm. that there was real life outside of education and it really appealed to me and I used to drive the uh, special effects guys crazy because I loved figuring out you know how do you put that fake nose on and and how does it you know how do you get somebody to look like that that's so cool so I would you know do my job as fast as I could but as well as I could and then I'd make sure that I had time to to spend learning from the people on set and think because I guess I had my p's and q's and and I'd been I'm very curious, so I pretty quickly picked up on the politics of set and knowing what you can and can't do. I, for the most part, learned a lot by doing that. And so you had that curiosity about special effects and VFX, and I'm wondering when that crystallised into, okay, yeah, that's, that's what I want to kind of work towards and start working in that arena. I was obsessed with Willow as a kid and Star Wars, Star Trek, Jurassic Park, The Matrix. These were the movies that I kind of grew up with. Basically, this really precocious kid, right? So I, you know, my parents would have all these great, you know, people around to dinner and and I would want to out-talk people. So I, I would, you know, make sure that I did things like, it wasn't just good enough that I could recite the script of a, of a movie. I would watch it with the sound off so that I would start to learn the construction of the sequences and what worked as an edit and what didn't. So I knew that I was always going to have a career either as a creative or as, well, what I thought back there, a politician. (laughs) As it turns out, being politically minded and creative is perfect for visual effects production. So I, to begin with, was really sure that I wanted to be a creative. I've always painted. um, I took a lot of photographs, but uh, something that I think has helped me in my career is learning when you're not good enough at something. For somebody who never thinks, like, I'm never satisfied, ever. Mm. It's one of my great challenges in life. But I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be that strong of a creative. But I have a really strong creative knowledge. And I'm also um, what I describe as a systems thinker. So I'm, I'm thinking again about how is that thing constructed? How could it be improved? And so after a couple of years working my way up from being a runner to being a VT op, back when there still were videotapes. And I trained as, a, as an assistant colorist. And mm-hmm. that's when I kind of realized, oh, I've, I've hit a bit of a, a ceiling here. And it was one of my managers said to me, you know, you do the best schedules for the team <laughs> that I've ever had. And I was a bit like, yeah, but just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm going to do the, the schedule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. But I really enjoyed it. And after I'd say about six months to a year of fighting it, I was like, mm, I'm going to do this. And then the studio where I worked opened a, a film division and took on a zombie movie and asked me if I would go across. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of uh, 15 years in, in visual effects. Yes. Do you think that you would have made the connection from being an assistant colorist to kind of working into the more production and logistics side of things had someone not pointed you in that direction? Because I often think if you're not outwardly creative, it's often quite, it can be quite off-putting. You think maybe film's not for me because we only ever see the kind of public kind of creative roles. Mm. Did, did you ever kind of think, actually, maybe I should just step away completely or... I did. So I I did that first movie and then two movies after that. And then I got uh, and I felt like, well, I'm clearly really well suited to the production team, but I wanted to do something different. So I decided that I would go and be a carpenter for a year. And that was great. But it kept pushing me back to the fact that, yeah, you really love being creative, but creative is probably more your hobby and organization, systems thinking, designing teams, managing teams. That's probably what you should be doing. And was lucky to have some great mentors. And they were all, they, they were consistently saying to me, you should run teams. And the more they were telling me that, the more I was thinking, well, 
I should probably just pursue this. And then I had this fantastic coach that taught me some incredible lessons. Uh, and the most important one was, it is unnecessary to try to be good at everything. Uh, and the greatest happiness can be found by reveling in what you do best. Mm. And it was probably some of the most fantastic feedback I ever got because even now, you know, as a general manager, I've been a managing director, head of production, there are parts of the job that I don't like. And there are the parts of the job that lights me up. Like I literally live for those parts of the job. And I used to feel like not enjoying and not excelling at every single part of the job was a failure. Now I know it's just a human condition. (laughs) But as a precocious young person, I was so focused that, well, I should take the job that pushes me the most outside of my comfort zone. And in some cases, that's correct. But there also comes a point where you think, okay, well, I've learned these things. I've got comfortable being uncomfortable. Maybe I should go do the thing I really enjoy. And maybe there's real satisfaction in that. I think I was quite lucky that I was supported by people that recognized potential and were invested in making sure I I was aware of that path. They didn't push me down it. In fact, a lot of the, um, particularly the female creatives I was working with, were really angry with me for going into production. Why do you think that was? Because there are not enough. And, you know, one, one in particular just said, you know, you're, you're vocal and you're, you're visible and you need to stay doing what you're doing. And I think now I have the confidence of knowing, sure, I can go back and do that if I want to. But even though visibility is extremely important to me and lifting up women that I work with, it shouldn't be the main motivation for the choices you make for your career. One of your first jobs was as a VFX line producer. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about what that entailed and how you built on that experience to kind of, you know, um, facilitate your rise through the VFX industry. Being a visual effects line producer is really about juggling a, a global schedule where you have lots of different artists working in different departments and you basically have to manage the critical path. So the critical path is the steps it takes to create something. So you can have a critical path for constructing a 747 Boeing if you want to, but you can also have a critical path for scheduling a, a comp task or in, in that case on that movie, um, you know, hordes of zombies running through London. And what you need to do is be able to understand how each of the component parts fits together. What might work if you remove one of those parts or if that one part is late? when it will completely fall over (laughs) and when it doesn't it's sort of best described a vfx line producer is laying the track in front of the train but the train is not slowing down and if you lay the track properly at the beginning of the show you're always 10 to 20 meters ahead of the train if you don't (laughs) if you approach the delivery you find yourself centimeters in front of the train laying that track it's the best way i can describe it I can see the systems thinking thing coming coming in. (laughs) It's how I understand it. And I'm also really fascinated by the psychology of teams. And I also think that being a manager is a vocation in addition to what it is you manage. Mm -hmm. And I think when I worked as a VFX line producer, I was starting to understand that, that how you asked for something from a team member, uh, how you supported somebody when they were struggling, how you were fair and firm, but kind all impacted the outcome Mm. and I really enjoyed that and did you kind of learn how to be a good manager through seeing it done perhaps not in the best way were you kind of thinking actually I know you know I I can do that differently I can I can improve on what Mm. you know how I'm being managed here how did you kind of build that template for how you wanted to manage teams I think that, you know, ultimately we learn the most about ourselves by failing so I I am self-aware enough to say I learned by doing I learned by making mistakes and I was lucky enough to be surrounded by people who were really genuine and, you know, I, as a result, I have made space for other people's mistakes and learning curves. And as you become more senior or even just more experienced, you learn that the bigger your teams are, the more your job is creating those pockets of space for mistakes and learning whilst protecting your clients. And, and coming back to the kind of linear career path, you know, how did you work towards becoming head of production at MPC? When I was at Framestore, I was working on Gravity and I really wanted to, I loved working on Gravity. It was amazing. And then there was this opportunity at MPC to go and be a central production manager. And I didn't really know what that was. So I went to have a chat with them and they basically were saying, well, you kind of get the keys to the castle, but you're, you're basically a fixer on all the different shows. And having worked on one show for two and a half years, I was mm. like, I want that. <laughs> and I work on all these different shows. And at the time, actually, my partner and I were considering adopting. And 
the kind of two and a half years at, at Framestore that I'd been doing, the hours were insane. Like they were insane. It was awesome because the director, Alfonso Caron, was actually in the building. So my office was next to his. We were, you know, it was amazing to get to work with him the way we did. But I often didn't finish till 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And after that period of time, I was really looking for something that would provide us with a better work-life balance. That's the joke, because then I went to MPC and worked even more intense hours. Uh, and I think for the first six months, I was like, what have I done? But at the same time, I was really developing my skill set to be able to have the sort of 10,000 foot view on a show and then dive into the really sort of microscopic detail to be able to fix things mm-hmm. and then to step out again. So I worked with incredible supervisors. They were really amazing. What I learned by doing that sort of roundabout way to answer your question is that I figured out pretty quickly that the first thing you need to do is build really strong relationships. And the second thing you needed to do was replace yourself. Hmm. So if you wanted to move and you wanted to move at pace, firstly, I I think promotion is really the marriage of skill and opportunity. Uh, You can have plenty of an opportunity, but if you don't have the skill to deliver on it, you're not going to go very far. And similarly, you can be really skilled, but simply be unlucky. (laughs) I've seen it happen to people sort of time and time again. What I did is I realized that if I was going to be able to move into a head of production role, which I wanted badly before I was 30, quite a milestone oriented person, I I want that. And I was lucky enough to work with an incredible head of production, global head of production, Rachel Matchett. She was absolutely fantastic, a mentor, a friend. And every time I pushed for more, she kind of went, all right, I give it to you. Let's see how you do. (laughs) And I saw that I had become very valuable and that if I allowed myself to be indispensable, I would be indispensable and I wasn't going to move anywhere. By that point, I was manager to a team of 50 coordinators and production managers. So what I started doing was profiling the next me. And I, and I found a really amazing manager, Siobhan Bentley, who was then working at Framestore. And she was incredible. She not really, really, really impressed me. So hired her in and started training her to replace me. Yeah, so it's like having the solution in place before you kind of create the crater of your decision. Exactly. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you need sponsorship to be promoted. So you need other people within the business at an executive level to see your value and you need to be solving problems for your boss not making them you you are making a problem if you you know push to be promoted but have no succession plan in place i just like to touch on gravity there because two things occur to me that you know i don't really know much about and one is that is it unusual to have the director kind of there in house oh, yeah. <laughs> i mean yeah it's super unusual it's the reason i wanted the job because i that was just after i'd taken time off to be a carpenter And I was thinking, you know, am I going to go back into production? I'm not sure. You know, maybe this isn't right. And a friend of mine, uh, a friend of uh, a friend, Jane White, um, actually said, hey, I know, um, you know, Frank Story doing this movie Gravity with Alfonso Cuaron. He's in the office. And, And actually, that's sort of a really good example of where not following the linear trajectory was really clever because I'd been a line producer. I'd been a VFX producer. But the only job available was a coordinator job. And so I took it. Yeah. And it was incredible. I worked on previs around the previs team and the layout and animation team for two years with great producers like Marcus Goodwin, Charles Howell, Richard Graham, Alana Lan. I learned so much from all of them. They were incredible. And the short amount of time that I had with Lorna Patterson and Fiona. Again, I'm, I'm just a bit of a sponge, you know. If if I know that I'm around great people, I'm just going to learn, learn, learn. Conversely, if I see myself around not so great people, I'm learning then too. Yeah, win-win. <laughs> yeah. Although it doesn't always feel like it. And then the second thing, I mean, you mentioned that the unforgiving hours, you know, within the VFX industry. And so I'm wondering, you know, how you avoid from burning out in, in that kind of situation where you might be forced to do, you know, very long days. Yeah, again, learn by doing. So I've, I am the not so proud owner of two burnouts. What do you mean by that? You know, it's a term that just gets bandied about a lot. And I think therefore it's kind of been diluted a little bit. And people just think burnout means, you know, maybe you're very tired. And so oh, like it's been more, become more socially accepted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll be a bit more specific. So the first time it happened to me was before I quit to be a carpenter. And I was working insane hours. And at that time I was 28. So I was like, just give me some more Red Bull and some Pro Plus and I'm good to go. Until I wasn't. Like, I remember just getting up one day and being like, oh, everything feels like lead. This is super weird. And then actually uh, a friend of mine who I was working with at the time uh, told me about he'd been driving back from set on his motorbike 
at like one o'clock in the morning, he had an accident. He fell asleep on his motorbike. And I remember that really shaking me up for a couple of, you know, for a couple of weeks. And it was almost like my body went, that can't happen to you. So I'm just going to start shutting things down because it's not, that's not allowed. <laughs> and yeah, I was exhausted, couldn't make good decisions. Everything was super hard. <laughs> so I took some time off and I uh, apprenticed to my dad, who was a carpenter. It was great. <laughs> I was just like, a, you know, I'd been running teams for a couple of years and now I was the lowest of the low. I was the apprentice, back to making good teas. A year of sort of manual labor. I'd say that's how I, how I worked through it. But then I, I went back and I made the same mistake. <laughs> That's the thing. But that's um, the, it's the culture around you, right? Because it, it's so hard. You can say to yourself, I'm going to work differently. But then when you're in an environment where everyone's doing it and no one's leaving the office until midnight or whatever it is, um, how, how do you stick to your boundaries if you're trying to set them? I think you've hit on a really important point, which is boundaries. Nobody can set your boundaries for you except for you. And I have definitely learned the hard way that you are responsible for those boundaries. You know, I seek as a manager to ensure that there is a safe working environment for my team, right? And that means that I need to make sure that wherever possible, there isn't overtime. And when there is, that we manage it properly and do our best to reduce it and to compensate for it fairly. Those are, those are my responsibilities as a manager, right? And also, I would say it's my responsibility to make sure I oversee the schedules on all the shows to avoid overcapacity that results in overtime. But when it comes to individuals, I'm a really strong proponent of this, this rule, which is you are the only person that can make you do it over time. Legally, in every single location I've ever worked, nobody has the right to make you do it over time. And somebody might hear this and go, well, you know what? When I was at MPC, you made me do overtime. Incorrect. I will have asked you to do mm -hmm. overtime. I cannot make you do overtime. I can't. And this comes from a place where I was the one putting myself under pressure to do the overtime. And yes, I have position power. So yes, if I'm saying to you, I really need you to do the overtime tonight, still, you can say no to me. And when people say things like, oh, you can't say no, then you get blacklisted. I have worked at some of the biggest visual effects companies in the world, and I've never seen that actually happen, ever. And in fact, I would say the greatest respect in the room of most teams that I work on goes to the artist or the supervisor or the producer that does amazing work in eight hours. Yeah. You know, the person that says, this is my lunch hour, I'm leaving the building. The person that says, I finished my work for the day, I'm going home. That's the person you need to be paying attention to because that's the person that can teach you. And normally they're in their late 30s to early 40s. <laughs> and normally they can tell you what happened when they didn't follow those rules because yeah. it sucks. And, you know, the sad thing is people do tend to repeat the cycle. All that happened with me is it took longer the second time. So for the first time, I had been working for about four years and it took 10 years to repeat it all over again. And now you feel like you're in a place where you that wouldn't happen again? It's funny that you say that because every, every day I have to check in with myself. So after I left a mill film, which as managing director was probably the scariest choice I've ever had to make, but I made it for my health. I took six months off and then I started thinking about which business I would return, you know, what would I do? And I consciously made a choice to choose a business that was committed to work from home, which Scanline is, which is awesome. And also a business that was prepared for me to do the, you know, do one job really well instead of five jobs at 20%. So yeah, these are some of the things that you learn. And I would say at seven o'clock every night, I start at 10, I finish at seven, seven o'clock every night, I have to make a conscious decision. <laughs> Step away. not to take my laptop, my laptop downstairs with me because you know I've got a separate office I worked hard to make sure that that was the case and I don't take any of my things outside of this room when I finish at seven o'clock and yet my wife will say <laughs> that at 7 30 every day she nudges me and says shouldn't be working anymore and every day a project comes across my desk that is exciting and that I know I can contribute to but I have to ask my question myself the question should I contribute to it? is it what I want to be spending my time on right now do I have anything to prove you know what why am I really saying that I want that I want to do it and actually, I'd say the, the, the worst thing that could happen for me right now is actually to be offered a promotion because I, sure, I can do the next job, but I don't want to do the next job. I want to do this job really well. I want to have a, re a continued, really successful marriage with my wife uh, who has seen me through, you know, all of those, those sort of curves. And I want to 
enjoy my time outside of work because I passionately believe it makes me better at my work. And so the thing that strikes me there is that you mentioned you were milestone oriented and you like mm. to kind of set yourself goals. So, you know, now that you've kind of said to yourself, maybe I don't want a promotion, what do goals look like for you if they're not that kind of tangible, like stackable kind of thing of the next thing, the next thing, the next thing? As, uh, that's such a good question. I've actually been having that that same discussion in, in different formats with so many of my female friends recently, particularly as we go through sort of lockdown. And I'm approaching my 37th birthday on Saturday. And my wife is buckling in for the fact that I'm I'm terrible to be around for that week. And it's all to do with the milestones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd say my my previous definition of success was I wanted to be head of production by the time I was 30. And I was. And then I wanted to be a head of studio or a managing director by the time I was 35. And I was. I wanted to own an apartment, done. I, you know, hefty mortgage, but done. <laughs> I wanted to be married, have a great relationship, uh, done. Those are, those are great external markers. But now I would say, what does success look like? Success is, you know, having six months worth of a paycheck in the bank as savings. Success is genuinely feeling every day that there is a part of your job that gets you excited, that you enjoy. Nobody, like, don't listen to anybody that says every single part of their job is fun. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. You're ignoring half of their job if that's true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But try to be doing something that makes you feel that way. And, you know, I think really maybe stop using the word milestone. <laughs> I'm not there yet. <laughs> and the other thing that interested me about your career is that you've you know you've worked for all these like vfx behemoths you know mpc frame store the mill now scanline and you've moved around them and i'm wondering if that's usual or unusual within your industry and why you preferred that path of kind of movement and change as opposed to you know progressing internally with one company i think it's fine to be at one studio and to progress internally that's great but you're only going to learn one way to do it and how can you innovate and push yourself if you are only aware of one way to do it? And that's something that, again, this sort of never being satisfied thing that I have is definitely one of the reasons I wanted to move around because I was really clearly aware that there were very different ways of working. At Framestore, like I said, was working really closely with the director, super creative, really kind of iterative, learning so much and it being such an incredible team to work with. But again, it was very different. So I want to just keep knowing about the way the different teams work, because then I'd be able to figure out what was best for me. And these days, that tends to be the advice I give to other people in production is go figure out what it's like at a couple of different businesses, then decide what's the right fit for you. Trying these different um, ways, I think it keeps you sharp, both as a manager with your, with your own skill set. But, both, you know, also the studios, like I said, do work very differently. When I was a frame store, it was creative when I was MPC you know I was really focusing on utilization and how do you make resource utilization work and achieve the creative output that you need which was a completely different way of looking at it and really really challenging and really developed my business acumen and at Scanline it's a completely different way of working really project oriented and really focused on innovation very very different businesses that require a very different skill set as a production manager so it appeals to me. Doesn't mean you can't do it the other way. You can stay at one place for the duration and learn a huge amount. You know, I was learning from Charles Howell, whose whole career was at Framestore. But I also wanted to learn from Christian Robertson at NPC. I also wanted to learn from Rachel Matchett. And now I'm learning, you know, from Stefan, uh, from Scott and from Cindy and Jasmine at, at Scanline. I just kind of, for somebody who avoided university, I always want to learn. <laughs> yeah, it's quite ironic. <laughs> and you, you're someone that's won awards for being a role model, um, you know, within VFX. And I'm wondering how you manifest that energy on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, how are you putting out the good vibes, even when you're feeling maybe stressed out or under pressure and you've got a deadline to hit? I think it comes down to integrity and a willingness to put your hand up when you make mistakes. So like I said, you know, before I make mistakes every day, but being willing as a manager and a leader to stand up and say when you've made a mistake to ask for help I think shows an integrity that people respond to you know in some areas I've, I've been really successful but in other areas you know I've failed by my view failed to do enough but I think because I'm out there kind of grafting every day bringing my whole self to the job I think people respond to that better than they do 
being told to follow the directions of somebody they don't get a lot of face time with. It doesn't mean I'm better or worse or they're better or worse at the job, just that we do it a bit differently. And I think that people work for people, not for businesses. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to ask a lot of somebody and I ask a lot of myself, I figure I should be the one doing the asking, not sending somebody else off to have the conversation. So I think that's made a difference. And I'm lucky enough to be working in an environment where I can bring my whole self to work. I'd say definitely for the last 10 years of my 15 years, I've been very much out. I talk about my wife a lot. I'm super proud of her. She's amazing. She allows me to be great at what I do. And I think that having people in leadership roles that recognize their position power, and I would say position power goes hand in hand with position responsibility, that I make it, you know, you have a choice. You can advocate for those around you who might not have the position power or the voice that you do, or you can be more insular and think that there's only room for one. I don't think that's ever the case. I think you should just find another chair or build another chair and pull it to the table because then you've got another perspective. And I think that's a much more exciting way to work. Yeah, it's like bringing humanity to the table rather than authority, I guess. Like, as you say, yeah, bringing your whole self to it. Exactly. And as long as you, you know, you educate yourself on business acumen, I think that's so important. So I hear people complaining about overtime and I hear people complaining about, well, why don't the clients just X, Y, Z? If you educate yourself on the business acumen underlying visual effects as a business, Mm -hmm. then you will start to understand better why certain things happen and how you as an individual can impact uh, positively or negatively. And I think that's so important as well. So I definitely make sure anybody, any of the managers working in my team, uh, I teach them business acumen. It's a critical part of how they work. And, you know, coming on to talking about sort of being out and being, you know, a proponent of kind of LGBTQ in, um, visibility within the VFX mm-hmm. industry, you won an award for your work in diversity and inclusion in 2019. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what your priorities have been in terms of making the VFX industry a more inclusive and representative space and, and where you think there are still, you know, gaps and, and what still needs to be achieved for that to happen? I think that there are lots of regions where visual effects work is being done, where we enjoy excellent LGBTQIA plus freedoms. And even though we've seen recently how quickly those can be eroded, particularly in the United States, I think that it's really important to be out, to be visible. But I I think that I'm acutely aware that colleagues of mine that uh, live in Russia and that live in India in particular do not feel safe at all to be able to mention their sexuality, bring even a quarter of their whole selves to work. Mm. So I think it's really important that we don't take for granted the freedoms that we do have. I particularly work with um, quite a few people who I've had the privilege to work with in the last few years who have transitioned at work. And I think that there's a lot more we can learn as managers about how to support people on those journeys. And I'm, I'm, I feel privileged and, and very lucky to be able to help create spaces that allow people to not just transition but to start to feel safe to even begin those thoughts of what that transition might look like and there are such small things that you can do to make that happen like as a manager it's not a big overhead to make sure you have a gender neutral bathroom but to have a gender neutral bathroom might be the first time that individual who's been struggling with their their identity and their you know those big big questions starts to think oh well maybe the first thing I can do is I can start not giving myself such a hard time when I'm going into some of these spaces and I'll just use that bathroom and sort of beginning of them working out some of these things. I also work really closely with the HR teams on what we call gender 101, which is I'm, I'm quite a handy, I use myself as an example. I get misgendered all the time, mostly on planes. And then people go, oh my God, like you're about to lose your mind over it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, they expect you know, really it, like an offended reaction. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you have two options. You can either, you know, laugh it off or you can use it to educate. It's up to you. And um, so, you know, you can start to make those changes if you want to. And I, I tend to just always, if I'm not sure, I will always ask somebody what their preferred pronouns are. And the thing is, I've figured out you're never going to offend somebody by asking because, you know, something that we did at, uh, at Mill Film and Technicolor is everybody, uh, there were a number of our team who were transitioning and everybody added a pronoun badge to their ID badge, sort of as a show of support, you know, that it, it's, it's no big deal. And if it helps you, we're totally here for it. So it was really interesting. But there are definitely, while I was at MPC working with huge teams in India who 
they've very definitely worked with LGBTQIA plus people, mm. but they were not out and they were not safe to be out. And you have to be respectful of that as well. I, I presume some of this is in your trans toolkit that you created. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember where, I think it was at Mill Film that you, you yeah, put that yeah, together. Yeah, I did, working with um, the HR and a recruitment team there as well. And I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on, you know, how, how that was received, you know, how you distributed that among the company and, and what else, you know, was included in it. Mm, the trans toolkit was run by uh, James Luen, who uh, currently still works at, at Technicolor. And what we focused to do is to create a safe space where our crew who were transitioning or were in the process of it, where you didn't want people to get dead named. So obviously dead named is the use of the name the individual has before they choose their new name. And that can be really tricky for people, really tough. People can accidentally dead name each other just by not understanding what's going on, right? Yeah. So we outlined what those crew would want us to change so that it wasn't us saying, oh, hey, we, we, we watched this TED Talk and now we're super well-informed on gender. <laughs> Instead, it was, hey, you're going through this yourself. What would you like us to do? And we already had the gender neutral bathrooms. So the next thing was, can we have the option to have a pronoun in our email signature? Yes, easy, rolled it out for the whole team. And the second one was, how do we educate the people that we're working with on our pronouns? And that was really interesting because it's somewhere like Scanline, for instance, we, we have people that we've been working with, they're small teams, they've known each other for 10, 15 years. At MPC, at Mill Film, you know, the rate of growth was so high that sometimes you're having 20 new people a week. That caused a real challenge around how, how do you get that information out fast enough that the dead naming is not happening. And actually by educating the managers and educating the leads as well on, on how to behave in that kind of situation, it worked, it worked out really well. And one of the most important things I think we did was creating an environment where it was okay to ask. It was okay to say, hey, I'm, I'm not sure about this. What should I do? And we did little things like my favorite thing, <laughs> the easiest thing is instead of saying, uh, you know, when you're finishing a meeting, okay, thanks guys, just say thanks folks. Super easy. And nobody in the meeting is going to feel like not as cringy as people going guys and girls or, uh, you know, it, it's just some easy changes you can make to your language that make people feel more included. And I guess I'm wondering as well, you know, you mentioned there that you, you were out for 10 years of a 15-year career. And I'm wondering how you have found working in the VFX industry. Uh, you know, have you found it to be a progressive place to work? Have you found it at times prohibitive? Have you found it at times both? I think it's very progressive. And we're very lucky to and, you know, privileged to work in an environment that is as progressive. It's a creative environment and the majority of the people you work with have been exposed enough <laughs> to enough influences to, to, to not feel threatened or concerned about it at all. That said, I am definitely aware uh, as a sort of, as somebody that's visible, I, you know, have been aware of people who I've worked with in this progressive environment who have been told things like, well, you just need a good husband. All these things still happen. People are still yeah. people. You know, we're, all you can do is shrug it off. And, and if you have the energy for it, educate. But it's not your responsibility to educate. And then we've touched on burnout. And I think the other term that kind of comes up a lot, both in culture and on this podcast, is imposter syndrome. Um, and, and just a feeling that you, you're you not good enough and you don't belong. And as someone that's achieved a lot at a very young age, I suspect maybe it's something that you have encountered. I know that you also give coaching on the topic. So, you know, without asking you to kind of solve the world's problems or give away your secret sauce for free, I'm just wondering, you know, what are some strategies that you personally employ to kind of overcome that anxiety? from when you feel it? I think that the most important thing is to recognize that imposter syndrome exists uh, and it's not the sole purview of women. Mm. But what is very clear from a purely a research perspective is that largely when, um, if you, you, know, you were to take one department and look at a male and female in that department, it's highly likely one's getting paid more than the other. It's highly likely that if the the man applies for a promotion, they will apply when they're 50% ready. And it is much more likely that the women applying for the same promotion will wait until they're 90% ready. And I think it actually needs to be tackled at childhood. I think I was very lucky to be told when I was precocious that I 
could be a leader. I'll never forget being told that because it changed my whole adolescence. And I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't been told that, you know, I was very lucky to have a lot of enrichment. So for me, you know, nobody ever told me I was bossy. They said I had leadership potential. Kids need to hear that more. Young, young girls, they need to be told when they've got a voice, when they're precocious, when they're inquisitive, when, you know, they are driving for, for change and to define their own journey. They need to be told they have leadership potential. And that's something that Sheryl Sandberg talks about a lot. And I really agree with, I think. Imposter syndrome is something we've created for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting because it means we can solve it for ourselves as well. <laughs> I definitely was that kid that always pushed myself to do better. So I always pushed myself to take on the scary thing. So I think that actually I was always in a bit of a war with imposter syndrome. Mm. And what I what I coach is that the best thing you can do for imposter syndrome is actually get curious about it. And then you have a choice to make. So don't try to ignore it, acknowledge it, get curious about it, see it almost as a a little, this is like a fidget spinner for me, right? Think, okay, so this is, this imposter syndrome isn't this big cloud of something that holds me back. Let's say it looks exactly like this. So what does it feel like in the hand? How does it move? What are the component parts? It's the system thinker again. (laughs) You know, what do I do if I want to change the way this looks? And I think about imposter syndrome in the same way. So figure out where it's coming from, figure figure out what it's holding you back from, and then figure out what you want to do about it. And then be prepared to be uncomfortable while you do it. So Vernay Myers from Netflix um, Diversity and Inclusion team talks about real change only comes when people get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's the, the most effective thing you can do when confronted with imposter syndrome. Thank you for that. That was that was incredibly eloquent and, and helpful, I'm sure. I mean, to me personally, but I'm sure hopefully to the people that are going to be listening as well. I'm going to talk about your career in terms of, you know, the tangible things and the great amount of films that you've worked on because you've you've racked up an incredible array of credits, you know, Blade Runner 2049, The Martian, Spectre, Wonder Woman. I could go on and on. I'm wondering what you think is the key to original and successful visual effects. It's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. Um, <laughs> Innovation, inspiration. Uh, I think innovation and inspiration is so important. You know, I, I look at movies like Jurassic Park and I, I know, you know, in my time, I have interviewed probably over a thousand people and Jurassic Park is almost mentioned more than Star Wars when you ask people what inspires them. And when you look at it and you do your reading, actually, there are so many directors and visual effects supervisors that were inspired to begin their own journey watching a film like Jurassic Park. It's really ambitious. Your challenge is the suspension of disbelief that Sam Neill is standing next to a T-Rex. So that for me is the innovation and the ambition. You know, the visual effects that I really enjoy, they're mm. ambitious, they're innovative, and they tend not to have been done before. That's mm. what attracted me to Gravity. That's what attracted me to Jungle Book. Right? We're doing something that hadn't been done before. And that's really exciting. There's also a huge amount of risk because it's not been done before. It might not come off. And my experience, for instance, on a show like Cats was could be ambitious, could be challenging, and you might not pull it off. Mm. You straddle that line right all the time. Yeah. And as a production person, my job, like I said, is to be laying that track under that train. And the challenge comes where, you know, you're sort of, you're designing the train tracks as you're laying it in front of that train that's hurtling down the tracks. And how do you reconcile, you know, the moments where it doesn't quite happen and you don't quite put it off? So I I think moving on without learning the lesson is the ultimate failure. That's how I reconcile it, at least. If you don't know why it went wrong, you are doomed to repeat it. And there is no greater failure in a manager than that mistake. Because as a manager, you carry the the responsibility of the people that work for you, their partners, their children. You're you're paying a salary that impacts Mm. all of these people day to day. And if you make a mistake and it goes wrong, stand up next to it and say you made a mistake and it went wrong and learn the lesson from it. Otherwise, frankly, people shouldn't be working for you. Is there a moment in your career that you're proudest of or a project that you're proudest of having worked on? It's interesting because I used to think my younger self was proudest of the movies that won awards. My more mature self is proudest of 
the moments where I saw members of my team reach their full potential. Having seen somebody develop their career, you know, you might have hired them as a runner or a coordinator and seen them graft and learn and be resilient and make mistakes, but pick themselves up and know that you were there at those moments to reassure them, to help them, but mostly just to make sure that they were still still up and running and that they were learning, that they were building their confidence back up again. When you see them get their first credits as VFX producers, or even you just see them in a great morning meeting and they kill it and the energy is amazing and you know that everybody is going to go into the rest of their day and it's going to be fantastic. That's the moment where you think it's a good start to the day. Do you recall having had that moment yourself where you thought, I'm reaching my full potential? Yes. And I think maybe my, what I do these days, and this is silly, is I actually try to write it down. Because when you're completely overwhelmed and you have so much that you need to get done and the pressure feels so big, a little reminder of that moment when it works is huge. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think my, my, my toughest time when I was at Mill Film, when I really felt that I was failing, is I had this little book of thank you notes that people had written me when they, when they were leaving, going on to do something else. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> you know, learning every day, some things are within your control and some things are not, and you do your best with them and you learn as best as you can. But if every day you're coming in and you're trying to do your best, I just don't think there's more you can ask of yourself or that other people can ask of you. And if you make a positive impact, then I think ultimately that's the thing to be proudest of, to be honest. And as someone who's big on learning and and taking, you know, from each experience, I'm wondering if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or, you know, perhaps to phrase it differently, something that you, you think that you, you know, could have benefited from knowing earlier. Yeah, I think when I took the job as Global MD at Mill Film, I wasn't ready. And I thought that that adage of feel the fear and do it anyway was the more important thing. Mm. But actually, in hindsight, I wish I'd been able to have that self-talk with myself and say, are you ready? Would it be better to, to hold back a little bit or to ask for more help? to try to not to, do, to, to be all the things for all the people? A coach that I worked with at the time said, how many times do you fly? And, and I didn't understand what she was, she was talking about. And I said, well, you know, I, at that point, I was flying every three weeks for two years. No, you know, energy's going out the back of the plane, right? There's, there's, <laughs> there's not much going in. And I said, oh, do you mean that? And she said, you know, there's a safety talk on the plane every time you get on it, right? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> she said. So what do they say? Do they say put the oxygen mask on all the other people, prop up the plane, refill it, make sure that everybody's fed, and then, you know, under your own power, get it from A to B? Or are you supposed to put your oxygen mask on first? She had a point. Yeah. And now I've learned that lesson. Mm-hmm. I've learned that lesson. And I'm grateful to all the people that helped me on that journey. The um, I'm very grateful to be part of the incredible work that they did. Was it difficult to extricate yourself from that job, given that, you know, it was a huge, a huge moment, you know, it was, you yeah. can feel like you made it to then sort of walk away from something that feels like such a big achievement it takes a lot of courage. I guess I don't think it was a big achievement. I think that it was a huge learning lesson. And there was a different lesson to be learned every day. And like I said, I'm so lucky and privileged to have worked with so many incredible people through that experience that I wouldn't give it up and I wouldn't mm. change it. But I, I might have gone about that journey a bit differently. But again, one of the best lessons, this one, this one comes from my wife, is you can do fuck all about yesterday. But you could change today and you can change tomorrow. And being able to change today and change tomorrow was one of the reasons why I decided to do something different, which in that case was, you know, having not really seen my wife for two years, <laughs> was to take six months off and just to really check in with myself, be curious, not just with everything around me, but also with myself and to figure out what it was I was looking for. And I think the ultimate lesson for me was you don't always have to be pushing to do the next thing. You know, you can kind of get caught in the feeling of striving for promotion and being promoted can be quite addictive. And actually, there's a huge, I think, lesson for me was learning that instead of constantly chasing the promotion and trying to be bigger and better, and maybe I should figure out what I was really good at and be really good at it. So with that in mind, the idea of, you know, you can change tomorrow in your role at Scanline, you know, what do you want to change tomorrow in that role? 
It's a good question. I want, uh, you know, at Scanline, we're focused on bringing the most talented people together we can and doing the best, most innovative work we can. So for me, the priority is making sure that I can curate, support and manage teams that do just that. I am really sort of devoted to the next generation of talent. So I spend a lot of my time looking for promise in the crew that we do have and identifying training and development tools for them to get them where they want to go at the right pace. And I guess I strive to be the manager at times I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by, you know, the person that gives you that right piece of advice at the right time that helps you see your way through and sort of inspires you to, to, to fulfill your own journey. That's, that's, that's what I want. That's what satisfies me now about the job. And yes, I continue, you know, I'm lucky enough to be on um, Involves list this year, which was really exciting because the same day it came out, five people who I didn't know were queer at Scanline reached out to me and said, oh, hey, we saw this on LinkedIn. We didn't know. It'd be really great to have a chat. Can you give me advice on X, Y, Z? And so for just that is a great opportunity to be able to help make people feel more, more comfortable. And off the back of that, what does promise look like to you? It's, a, it's an interesting mix of smarts. Like you have to be smart, but it's not book smart. It tends to be emotional intelligence. So people who are able to take their skill and apply it as working part of a team is no mean feat. <laughs> so when you see people making decisions, not just for themselves, but looking for efficiencies and gains that benefit the team around them, that for me is promise because that's what you need to be a good manager. That's what you need to be a good lead. So I, I look for that. You know, at times I've been guilty of seeing too much promise in too many people. But that's that's how you learn as well. Um, and then finally, I'm wondering, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem and that you think more people should have seen? Oh, Nomadland. If you have the time, just watch it, watch it again. I'm working with Chloe at the moment on a show. She's incredible. And that film, such a wonderful piece, such a wonderful piece. It really is quite incredible. It's very, very current. Uh, there are, you know, uh, a huge number of female directed projects that are really worth a look um the farewell as well lulu wang incredible yeah there's, there's a lot out there if you you can go hunting for it or you know you uh, there's a lot of movies people love that they're surprised to see directed by one yeah and nomadland could be one of them I, I think you don't often see the kind of the ruggedness of america with that the sensitivity of you know yeah. eye. and so many of the uh, actors being people they came across on the journey mm -hmm as well and I think there's something about that that just feels like it's not voyeuristic like it's, it's actually just documenting uh, around a narrative. Lauren thank you so much this has been so valuable and such an enjoyable chat for me thank you so much for your time today. Oh I've loved I love chatting with you. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday, but in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. <laughs>